of 1 Samuel. And it's going to be one of those occasions where the person reading the Bible has several names that you're going to enjoy. And you're grateful (laughs) that it's not you reading it. Um, So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and I'll read the first chapter as these have been collected in. There was a certain man... Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramathin, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Peniah. Peniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas were the sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they'd finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you go? Are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of the great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went home, back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time Hannah became pregnant gave birth to a son, and she called him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him to present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make his... Make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, 
along with a three-year-old bull, an ephra of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he'll be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Amen. It's uh, great to be able to start a new series this morning as we're uh, camping over the next uh, few weeks in 1 Samuel. And it's the part of the Bible where it's particularly exciting if you like history, uh, because it's the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. And uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, action and adventure. It's one of those uh, parts of the Bible that it's probably exciting to read if you're a boy. Uh, I'm not gender stereotyping, but I, I think it's probably true because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of warfare. There's a lot of intrigue. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it's incredibly fun. But actually, uh, apart from that, what is really exciting is to see God at work behind the scenes and see how something that perhaps was relevant to the history of the people of God still has an incredible impact upon us today. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, uh, it's kind of uh, been about 25 years since I've been here at CFM. And uh, I've taken some time over the last few weeks just to reminisce, because that's what you do when you get old. It's a, it's a private hobby. Uh, you reminisce and uh, you let nostalgia kick in, because it's quite wonderful. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about is, is exactly the, the, the traveling coming, coming over here all the way from Birmingham. And uh, my very good friend, John, uh, I wasn't driving at the time, and uh, I had some stuff with me that, you know, you accumulate all the junk in five years of student life. And um, he very kindly offered to take me in his white Mondeo. Uh, John was one of the uh, impressive guys with regards to cars in Bible college. You know, Bible college students are very poor normally, and uh, John had a Mondeo, a white Mondeo, so that was his pride and joy. And it was... uh, you know, uh, he was always offering lifts to the girls in order to impress them, taking them out for meals. But that's another story. <laughs> and uh, John came up with me all the way from Birmingham. Um, he was already working as a youth worker in an Anglican church there. And the beautiful thing is that actually uh, what was uh, very much colleagues and probably a little bit rivals in, in, in Bible college, uh, we both stood for head student and... Uh, uh, I won't tell you who got it. And uh, there was some uh, kind of funny bitterness afterwards and rivalry. He was a much better football player than I was. He was a much better singer than I was. And he was a right show off, and, um, which I'm not. And uh, the beautiful thing is that after college and after me coming over here, uh, the friendship flourished. He actually ended up working in Lancaster Free Methodist Church. It was called then Hope Church now. Uh, in, in youth work, and our relationship got closer and closer. I was the best man at his wedding. And uh, then he moved, he got married, and he moved, and he lived down in uh, Rumford, again serving in a church there. And uh, then uh, together with his wife, they, they moved in the, in, in the bath area. And uh, I vividly remember he was working sort of part-time uh, as, as, as a pastor for outreach, evangelistic pastor uh, for the church down there. And he was also a very, very good tradesman. 
he was uh, uh, really, really good at what he did. So he's kind of doing the two together. Uh, and I, he rang me one morning and he said, uh, there's something not right with me. He says, I just keep dropping things from my hands. And he says, you know, it's probably tiredness. You know, I'm doing the house up. I'm also doing jobs for other people. Um, uh, and didn't think much of it, but I said to him, you, look, you, you need to go and see your GP. Uh, I gave him all the right, you know, pep talk that men give to other men that they never listen to. And uh, he said, I'll make some appointments. I'll make some appointments. So he did. And really, in a weird kind of way, within three weeks, just the whole thing spiraled out of control where he ended up having genetic tests. And uh, it was probably about four or five weeks after that that he rang me and he said, uh, I've got some really bad news. I've got MND. I didn't, I'd never heard of MND. This was before the bucket challenge when we all heard about MND, motor neuron disease. And I just thought, well, well you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some medication, some treatment. He says, there's, there's nothing. And he says, it's degenerative. And I thought, well, you know, you'll be all right for the next 25 years. And things just moved on so incredibly quickly that within a year and two months, I remember going to see him. Uh, he was in care, in a, in a hospice. He was unable. He'd lost, by Christmas, he'd lost his ability to speak. Um, and he would have a, a dot on his forehead, which he would, he still manages to move his head, and he would move it on a screen that actually would type letter by letter in order to communicate. So that's, that's incredible to see a friend he was super active, a gymnast, former GB gymnast, you know, a very fit man in that condition. And we sat down, we prepared the funeral service, and I had the privilege to, to lead that and do that. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to see that crematorium curtain close. And my friend John kind of go in. And that's that. And it doesn't make sense. He had two boys. One of the boys, the oldest boy, with special needs. Um, he was a godly man, a really godly man, much godlier than I have been. Uh, and, and he had a passion for God that was just never, ne ne never, never stopped. You know, he believed until his dying moments that he was going to be healed. He just held on to God. No bitterness whatsoever. Just a strong trust in God. And you look at situations like that and you think, and I kind of think about him almost every week. It's one of those things where you just think, I'd just love to pick up the phone to chat to John and have a laugh. He was a Leicester fan. He missed out on Leicester winning the Premier League. Oh, wow. And life is like that. And it looks different for all of us because human life is marked by these kind of, I call them setbacks. It's a euphemism for all sorts of rubbish. And for some, it could be failing an exam that really changes your whole life. For some, it could be getting a diagnosis that, again, just you never saw it coming. And it alters everything. 
your parents uh, and, and you go for certain scans and you find out that your baby is having some health difficulties and what's supposed to be good news isn't so good news. There's relationship breakdowns where somebody that you've thought you spend your whole life with them just walks out of your life and leaves you. Life is peppered with these kind of situations. And the reality is probably in this room, some have been there, some will certainly go there. Because that's life here on earth. And the question is, how do you make sense of where does God fit in all of this? And how do I react as a follower of Jesus to some of these kind of setbacks that can happen in our life? And this is why this incredible story right at the very beginning of the onset of the, uh, this new era in the history of God's people, the beautiful thing about it, it's, it's, it's entrenched in a human personal story. So instead of jumping to the big picture, kings and who will be leading and who will be the hero and who will be the villain, the reality, we, God almost pulls back uh, the story so far into a really ordinary family with an ordinary situation, but a challenging situation. And I love that about God's word because it normalizes suffering and hardship. The author could have just jumped to the coronation and the highlight moments, the pomp, all the exciting stuff, editing out all the messy, uncomfortable things. But the Bible isn't like that, and God the Holy Spirit intended it to be like that so that it speaks right into the reality of our own lives, which, as I already said before, are peppered with those kind of moments. So you find Hannah, a a, a godly woman, in a situation, and I bet some of you kind of raised, some of you, if you're new to the Bible, you're kind of raising your eyebrows going, what the heck's going on here? There's this dude, Elkanah, with two wives, Hannah and Penina. So they're like, what's going on here? Didn't know that kind of stuff was in the Bible. What's going on here? It's not kind of the right kind of stuff. But this would have been obviously contextually right in that kind of context. So you find a, a, a family that probably wouldn't have been unordinary at the time with a husband and two wives. And one of the wives is barren. She cannot have any kids. And the other one is blessed. And she taunts her because she can't have any other kids. The first thing that really strikes me here is that the Bible is saying to me through this story that tragedy can be a reality, even for those who love God. Hannah loved God. I know that because I can see her going to pray to God. I can see her heart being absolutely directed in that way. So there's no doubt in my mind that she was a godly woman who loved God. Yet, and it's, uh, it's, I think it's the editor who writes that said that God had closed her womb. I think that was the reading of those at a time. We don't really know. God hasn't said that he closed It was people from the outside that looked at her, and they probably thought, well, she can't have any kids, so God must have closed her womb. And for Hannah, life would have been very painful. Painful because she would have loved to have children, but probably more than that, 
it would have been painful because in every possible way, in terms of a status in the family and in the society, this was not great. A woman who didn't have any children and a woman who wouldn't be able to carry on bringing offspring that would be a sign of blessing upon that family would have been looked down upon. And probably spiritually, people would have muttered and said, there must be something wrong with her. God must have cursed her because she can't have any children. So every single day, Hannah would be walking with a stigma in her life at every level. And it would have been probably very normal in the society of the time for somebody like Elkanah to think, this woman isn't bringing me any children. My mates at the pub, whether they had the pub or didn't have the pub, or wherever they gathered, you know, the blokes were gathering. I don't know what sports they were doing at the time. But the boys must have gathered together, and behind his back they must have laughed, saying, oh, you know, his wife doesn't have any kids. So look at us. We're so proud. We've got that many offspring, and it's a sign of how blessed we are. Look at Elkanah. He doesn't quite match up. And it would have been perfectly normal for men in those times to divorce their wives or try to get rid of them because they were barren. It would have been pro- probably perfectly appropriate. So economically, she could have lived with that fear every day of her life, thinking there would be a moment, there would be a morning when Elkanah wakes up and he says to her, I want you gone. You're barren. There could have been a stigma in thinking spiritually when she goes to meet with God's people, when she goes to worship, the people would look down upon her saying, what's wrong with her? I mean, it's not that long ago. They had to say maybe 30, 40, 50 years where, you know, if you would have been a divorced person stepping into a church, you wouldn't have been the most popular person there. We all have our versions of sort of looking down upon others and thinking that they're somehow cursed by God. And she could have lived with that sense of fear every day. Shame, pain, disappointment, everything you can think of. And that's the reality of life for Hannah. And that scene when she goes and prays that she just weeps and pours out her heart to God. And I think it's the outpouring of, what, of all the pain that was inside that was coming out. And yet she's a woman who loves God. Everything about this as well is saying to us that tragedy can be a reality for godly people. It's, it's, it's a powerful anti-prosperity gospel message. Prosperity gospel says if you love God, you're rich, you're healthy, you're popular. Everything is going smooth in your life. And if they're not, something's wrong with your relationship with God. It's not true. And I can prove it to you from a lot of places in the Scripture. And certainly this is one of those places actually saying to us, here's a godly woman who is suffering. And that normalizes suffering because so very often people feel stigmatizing the church. And again, it's, you know, it's, we were talking about 20, 30 years ago. If you were depressed in the church or if you, if you were going and receiving medication for mental health, again, people would be looking down upon you. You might be saying, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yes. I've talked to many people who've been through that stigma. We're normalizing. Suffering is real. 
even for godly people. Little footnote, but what's beautiful about this, and this is probably more for a men's gathering, there would be uh, there. I just love this man, Elkanah. Just his tenderness. He didn't divorce her. He didn't let go of her. He goes the very opposite way. He gives her a double blessing of everything. I love his tenderness, how he inquires about her. I love that when she makes the decision, this is in a patriarchal society, she makes the decision when that newborn son is born to just let go of him and dedicate him to God. This is a big deal. Firstborn to her and a boy. Big deal. Big sacrifice. And I just love the way Elkanah is so supportive, so tender with her. Christian men, be like Elkanah. Christian men and women, raise up your boys to be like Elkanah. Tender and caring, compassionate and loving and sacrificial. And in the midst of this tragedy, what I love about Hannah is that actually, while tragedy can be a reality, I love the fact that Hannah runs to God. She doesn't run away from God. Look from verse 9 onwards. Once they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you'll only look upon your servant and the misery and remember me, not forget your servant, but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. It's probably a reference to him being a Nazarite, kind of set apart. It's the elite sort of uh, spiritual men that served God. I love the fact that Hannah doesn't run away from God. When they were supposed to go to, the, to, to, to worship at Shiloh, she could have just hid in her bedroom and said, I don't want to go. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk to God. I'm sick and tired of this. This woman's taunting me. Where is God in all of this? Why doesn't he see my plight? And bitterness and hardness of heart could have just made their hole in her heart. And she could have said, I don't want to pray. Why should I pray? But she doesn't have that reaction. She goes to worship God. And she doesn't just do it to keep a facade and say, oh, I'm just going to be nice and, you know, keep the image. No, she's wholeheartedly pouring out her heart in prayer to God, weeping and praying and speaking to God. She doesn't run from God. She runs to God. She could have become bitter and cynical. She could have played the victim card. She could have made herself the center of attention. Instead, she chooses to let God be the very center of her life. And attention by coming in prayer and trust, pouring out emotionally her heart to God. In her pain, she embraced devotion. She made that choice. In her pain, she chose to cling to God instead of retreating and running away from God. She trusted him for help. And that's a good choice and a smart choice, a difficult choice. And I love the Baal Hannah, that in the midst of the tragedy, she doesn't choose to run away from God, but chooses to run to God himself. 
And the reaction of her heart is that she chooses to dedicate her child to God. Now, to us, it probably looks a little bit weird. And if you're reading the text wrong, it almost looks like a bargain. God, will you give me this? And I used to do those prayers, and maybe you used to do those prayers when I was about four or five. You know, uh, you know if, if, if you help mom not to see, you know, the broken porcelain bird that I smashed while playing football in the living room, God, I will pray every night. I mean, it would have been normal in the near Eastern ancient world to make bargains with the gods, whatever the gods were. I will do this for you and you will do this for me. This isn't that. I think Hannah chooses to dedicate her child if God is gifting her a boy as an act of worship, as an act of sacrifice, as an act of saying the most important thing for this boy will be for him to serve you. And I will make sure that that's a life that is going to be lived in dedication to you. It's deep desire, I think, in her heart, birthed from trusting God and loving God. And it was actually sacrificial because she was letting go of that which she wanted most in her life. I mean, there's something spiritually very deep here. We are clingers. We love to cling to things. We love to cling to people. We love to cling to possessions. We love to cling to positions. And all the time we're just clinging, clinging, clinging. And the moment kind of something happens to disturb that ability to cling to, our world just falls apart. And I love the fact that actually she's not choosing to take this boy for herself, selfishly or not so selfishly. But she says, I'm going to release him. Children can be idols in parents' lives. And I can imagine for Hannah, the little boy could have been an idol because she desperately wanted to have a child and she wanted to have a boy. And he could have become the idol that she clung to. I mean, imagine how protective she could have been over the years of him. But instead, she chooses to dedicate this child to God. And I think she had a great vision, a much better vision. I mean, I don't know whether parents are knowingly or unknowingly creating this, uh, you know, vision statements for their children. Uh, in different culture is different. I think Romanian culture is very similar to Indian culture. You know, everybody wants their child to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's, that's what you want for them. I think it's changed now. I think there's more money in IT and uh, certainly kind of, I think accountancy is quite on the rise as well. So, But parents have this desire for their children to kind of do well in life. And then that's, that's normal. That's, that's understandable. And sometimes the sort of lower uh, class background you have, the more aspiration you have, it's that line, isn't it? I don't want my kids to go through what I've been through or what my parents have been through. So aspiration is not wrong, but it so easily can creep into the children becoming projects, and you have it all lined up. He, he will do this, she will do that, and that's going to be their plan. And Hannah doesn't do that. The vision that she had for her son was the best. He would serve God, whatever that meant. He would serve God. And Samuel actually ends up, after he's born and as he grows up, <clears throat> 
that becomes possibly the greatest prophet Israel had ever had. One of the most significant spiritual leaders in the history of God's people. It's interesting as an aside, the pastoral blunder from the priest at the time. Eli was the priest at the time. Talk about getting it wrong. You know, I mean, we have this thing where, uh, you know, pastors do get a lot of things wrong. I am comforted by the fact that, uh, you know, while a godly woman is desperate in prayer, with his great pastoral skill, he accuses her of being drunk. It does happen. So uh, while Ian and I probably won't make such a mistake, probably we get ranked a little bit higher than Eli in his mistake. It's, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. Uh, and it just tells you the distress that Hannah was in as she was praying. It gives you a picture when you can mistake for somebody being in an inebriated state. She was so desperate as she prayed to God. And she decides to release the future child in God's hand. Several things that strike me here, and and some of them are theological and some of them are pastoral. Theologically, this whole passage just reminds us of God's compassion. Because God does a miracle. A boy is born, and this boy becomes a significant person in the history of God's people. And that's why we have this little personal backdrop story that sets everything into motion before we get to the big boys, Saul and David. God is compassionate and caring. He sees this woman's tears. And in his power, he steps into the situation and does an amazing work in that. And, you know, there's a a wonderful parallel. You know, when you're thinking God in his compassion and his power gave Hannah a child and the boy would be so influential, God, in his great compassion and power, gave me and you a child who was born of Mary, who came into our world to save us from our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle that's ever been, the one who was born in order to die, the one that died in order to rise from the dead, the one who came to take our sins and set us free. Both those stories speak about a God who is compassionate, about a God who is powerful to do incredible things. And this morning, I'm just saying to you, whatever your walk in this life is, whatever the circumstances are, this is your God too. The same compassionate God, the same powerful God who birthed Samuel, And who birthed the Lord Jesus is my God and your God. And my encouragement to us all is to react like Hannah did and not to run away from God. There is this thing that I've seen pastorally happen in times of difficulty. People withdraw from coming to church. They withdraw from going to the connect group. They withdraw from serving in ministry. And my human side gets it, totally gets it. But at the same time, Based on what I see here and based on what I I see all throughout the scripture, my heart is so saddened because you're running from the very rescuer that wants to 
comfort you and build up your life and strengthen you and encourage you. And I'm saying to you pastorally, in times of difficulty, don't run away from God. Run to God. Tough, really tough, really tough. How many times we've been in, a, in such a dark place and you think, I don't want to go to church. And you go to church and it's happy, shiny, happy people. It's just masks. Not everybody here is shiny, happy people. Everybody here bears burdens. Or going to the connect group. I just can't be going. Everybody else seems to be in a, in a good place. Things are good in their family. Things are good in their health. My life's falling apart. I don't want to go. Keep going. Keep going. Run to God. Run to the places where you meet with him. Because that's so, so significant. Hannah made that choice to trust him, to love him, to take that risky journey all the way to Shiloh from the comfort of home, thinking, I don't want to go. You know, I don't deserve to be there. Everybody's looking down on me. Just come to God. And the flip side is true as well. If we're encouraging one another to be courageous enough to actually come when we don't feel like coming, I'm saying we also together need to be a community that engages with that reality. There's nothing worse than the pastor saying, if you're hurting, come, and they come to a cold place, a place that's superficial, a place where everybody is into themselves. And you know how it does nothing worse than being alone in a crowd. It's a killer, particularly if you've kind of got yourself so motivated to step out of your comfort zone, you'd rather be in the bed under the duvet and just hide and you feel like your world is falling apart and you remember the words of the pastor and you remember the passage from First Samuel and you come to church and everybody's talking about the weather and they're talking about the football and all sorts of nonsense like that and your world's falling apart and you go home lonely and hurt and betrayed and beaten up. So that means if we develop on one hand the courage to come, we also need to, as a community of faith, to be the kind of people that are paying attention, are listening, are looking beyond the, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And when somebody's beginning to share something, we don't just uh, go, yeah, okay, whatever. Let me talk about myself now. But we take time to look after each other. And that's a learned thing. There's no recipe for that. I don't know how that's done. But I know that the Holy Spirit is at work, and he can enable us. He can enable us to see things and to say things if we are under his guidance. But there's nothing better than that kind of community where it's okay to come when you're not okay. And you know that somebody's going to be there. And if they don't know what to say, they'll just say, I'm hurting for you. I just don't know what to say. That's sometimes the most brilliant thing ever. And I'm praying with you. And I'm here for you. I'm here if you want to talk. I'm here if you want to have a cup of tea. I'm here if you want me to pray. I'm here if you want me to take to the hospital. 
I'm here if you want me to go on a walk with you. I, I'm here. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. And that's the kind of place where I think we can be honest and run to God, not run away from God, but also be a place where together we encourage and strengthen one another. I think we need to resist isolation because that's the most dangerous place we can find ourselves in. Now, as, as we've seen here, it, it, it's so beautiful, but let me put this because it's really important. Not every story has a human happy ending. I can't promise you that. This is a beautiful story, uh, as I've taught it from breakdown to breakthrough. There's a wonderful breakthrough. There's a beautiful miracle. There's a life-changing thing. I don't want to tell you, because again, that would be veiled prosperity gospel. And it's not, it's, it's not the Bible. <laughs> it's not true. I'm not saying you could, you could choose to not run away from God, but come to God. You could choose to pray. And sometimes the thing that you want to happen may not happen, humanly speaking, here on earth. John wasn't healed. I'm not kidding you. He, he, you know, he, he went to Bethel in California. He, he had the greatest healers on the face of the earth pray for him. He believed his family were desperate. He wasn't healed. He died. And humanly speaking, it's a bad ending. Spiritually speaking, I, I have no sadness in my heart. Because I know that the greatest thing that John loved, and this is not kind of, you know, tarting the truth up. This is true. The greatest thing that John loved was Jesus and sitting at the feet of Jesus and worshiping Jesus. There will be nothing that he loved more than that. And I know he's in a happy place, in a good place, great place. But humanly speaking, the story didn't have a happy ending. The amazing thing about Hannah is that she chose to make that mistake to invest in her children. And this is the, the thing as well that maybe is helpful to those of you who are parents and in investment she made. I think she sacrificially chose to dedicate Samuel to serve the Lord. And that doesn't mean your kids going into ministry. That means your kids loving Jesus. Let me finish with a story of Susanna Wesley. Uh, Susanna Wesley uh, is known in church history as the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who were both of them very influential in the establishment of Methodism. And... Uh, her life wasn't easy. And when I began to read a little bit more into her life, I just thought this is so relatable to so many of those who are parents, particularly in our culture today. She had to go through a lot in her life. In the first 19 years of her marriage, she gave birth to 19 children. Not all uh, survived. Eight of those children died of natural causes and sickness. One child was accidentally smothered by somebody who was helping her. One child was paralytic. Her husband was a minister, but actually he was suffering with depression. And very often he would just disappear from home, just leaving Susanna with the many children. One, one, one time, apparently, he disappeared for a whole year. On top of everything, they were very, very poor and often in debt. But she was one of the most unbelievable investor in her children's spiritual lives. So one of the things that apparently she used to do uh, in, in, in order to impact her children and instill the deep faith into them, 
she would spend every day an hour, this is with having all those kids, every day an hour praying for her children. And throughout the week, she would spend an hour with each child talking to them about God. And I think it's because of that, because of the investment that she had made in their lives by setting time aside to, to, to encourage them to, to love and serve God in whatever way they could. You have Charles who probably wrote more than 9,000 hymns and poems with an incredibly uh, wonderful impact upon church life over centuries. And then you had John, who was the establisher of Methodism, which significantly affected not just England, but the whole of the Western world and beyond. One of the beautiful things, apparently, on her tombstone, these are the words that were written. People speculate it probably would have been Charles the Poet that wrote this. A Christian here, her flesh laid down, a cross exchanging for a crown. A beautiful life of devotion that impacts the lives of the children to come. May God keep on equipping the parents. I pray for the parents in our church so much these days. Just seeing the opportunity and the challenge that they have. Praying that they would raise young girls and young boys who would love Jesus and serve Jesus in their own way. Amen. Let's stand together.